Okay, so in the first session of When God Writes Your Story, we explored one of the elements that every good story has, and that's setting. And we discussed how God used two people in the Bible, despite their distractions, with other things going on in their lives. And I just picked two well-known characters of the Bible, um, although we know that there's just lots and lots of um, good stories like that. I just picked those two to show how God wrote their stories. And like we discussed, these two characters take up a huge amount of verses in the Old Testament. They had starring roles in the Old Testament. But you know what? By studying God's Word, it doesn't take long to realize that God can use us despite how small our role or our plot is. And that role probably just feels small to us. It's actually probably huge on God's timeline. It's all part of that masterpiece, God's handiwork, all woven together to fulfill His purpose. I don't really remember when I decided that I wanted to be a teacher, but I've always loved kids, and I always enjoyed working with them, and somehow along the lines, at some age, I knew I wanted to teach little ones one day. I attended Georgia Southern University and majored in early childhood education, and I also obtained my master's degree in early childhood. I taught in Sylvania, Georgia, while David and I finished our master's degree, and then after that uh, is when he joined the Navy, and I taught in Jacksonville, Florida for three years, and then Camp Lejeune for one year. I loved teaching little ones, but I also knew I wanted to be a stay-at-home mom when my own children came along. At first, I remember thinking that being a stay-at-home mom wasn't as significant as being a teacher, but God found lots of ways to show me that my role as a mommy was an important one. I wonder if Shifra and Pua, I have no idea if I'm saying those names right, you know they really made Old Testament names complicated. Um, I wonder if Shifra and Pua of Exodus knew at the time how significant their roles were. Their story is told in Exodus 1, verses 8 through 22. And for the sake of time, those verses summarized describe Pharaoh's orders to Shifra and Pua, midwives, to kill all of the boy babies born to the Israelites when they were helping with delivery because the Egyptians feared that they were getting too numerous and might turn against them if war broke out. The midwives, however, feared God and didn't do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the little boys live. The story of Shifra and Pua are simply verses 15 through 22, eight verses in the Bible. That's it. They're never mentioned again by name in the Bible. Just a little blip on the timeline Yet their defiance of Pharaoh, because they feared God, quite possibly let a little baby named Moses survive. Some rabbinic writings claim they could have actually been overseers of a whole guild of midwives, and thus they would have had a great deal of influence over the birth of Hebrew babies. What bravery these two women exhibited to go before Pharaoh, knowing that they had openly defied his order because they were obeying God instead. Surprisingly, in this case, the two women are some of the few that are actually named in Exodus. Even Pharaoh is not given a name. But the midwives are named and remembered. A mere eight verses, and two women rewrote history from Pharaoh's words to God's words by sparing the Hebrew baby boys, which ultimately would lead to a baby boy named Moses floating down the river in a basket at some point. 
God used two women to change Pharaoh's plot to God's plot so that Moses could one day rescue the Israelites. Fast forward a bit in Moses' story, and we meet another lesser-known character of the Bible who, at first glance, seems like a very, uh, has a very small role in the narrative. But as we've already pointed out, God uses us despite how insignificant or small our role is. Moses first met Jethro when he fled Egypt after murdering an Egyptian who was beating a Hebrew slave. Moses fled to Midian and sat down by a well, um, eventually meeting his future wife, Zipporah. Moses met Jethro, Zipporah's father, and it was during the time that um, Moses was tending to Jethro's flocks that he had an encounter with God by way of a burning bush. In Exodus 18, verse 8, we read, So Moses told his father-in-law about everything the Lord had done to Pharaoh and the Egyptians for Israel's sake, and about all the hardships they had met along the way, and how the Lord had saved them. Jethro was delighted to hear about all the good things the Lord had done for Israel in rescuing them from the hand of the Egyptians. He said, Praise be to the Lord who rescued you from the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that the Lord is greater than all other gods, for he did this to those who had treated Israel arrogantly. Then Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and other sacrifices to God, and Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat a meal with Moses' father-in-law in the presence of God. So farther down in the narrative, Jethro watched as Moses sat as judge for all the Israelites, and Jethro suggested that Moses delegate the job to other godly men so that Moses could handle the big stuff and and get back to some other important jobs he had been doing. And the next several verses describe how Moses did just as Jethro said, and then verse 27 ends the chapter with this. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. So, a few more verses about Jethro than about the two midwives. Nevertheless, at first glance, Jethro seems like just a minor character in this novel about the famous Moses. But there's way more to Jethro's story. Jethro is identified as a priest of Midian, but it's, it's unclear from biblical scholars, at least what I read, as to uh, Jethro's worship of the Lord God as his only God or in addition to other gods that he worshipped. Some scholars believe he already knew of Yahweh, but some believe that Jethro learned of Yahweh from Moses. And scholars are divided about the words towards the end of what I just read, um, where he praises God for what he's done for the Israelites. Some say it's merely well-deserved praise for God, but some believe that that's when Jethro came to a saving knowledge of God. Either way, um, biblical scholars agree on this fact. Jethro is identified as a Kenite, which was a Canaanite or Midianite tribe that later affiliated at least in part with the Israelites, and traditionally this affiliation began with Jethro and his descendants. Jethro's belief changed the course of history for an entire group of people. And I think it's interesting to note, too, that whether that moment was Jethro's conversion or whether that was um, him acknowledging God's wonders in in praise, just after that is when he makes that uh, exclamation. He gives stellar advice to Moses about how he's handling the throngs of people he's in charge of. It's sort of like when Jethro was in tune with God and praising him, then Jethro got a word from God, and then he passed that on to Moses. 
As brilliant and spiritual and mighty as Moses was, he got a word from someone who wasn't even close to being as famous as he was. Um, Jethro completely reorganized Moses' way of doing things with his suggestion, which gave Moses the strength to go back and take care of his people and do some more important things. Uh, Moses may have seemingly gotten all the credit for that time in history, but let's not forget the little guy, Jethro, whose faith in Yahweh led him to make a profound impact on the mighty important stitch in the tapestry of God's timeline. And speaking of little guys, an interesting biblical character that I learned about while doing research for today was a man named Elishama. Listen to the words of Jeremiah 36. In the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Take a scroll and write on it all the words I have spoken to you concerning Israel, Judah, and all the other nations from the time I began speaking to you in the reign of Josiah till now. Perhaps when the people of Judah hear about every disaster I plan to inflict on them, they will each turn from their wicked ways, then I will forgive their wickedness and their sin. Again, for the sake of time, the gist of the next few verses is this. Jeremiah dictated words to Baruch and the words... um, and he put the words on the scroll. And the, the words did eventually get to the king, but not until it had been heard by and passed through the hands of several important officials, partly with names hard to pronounce is the reason I didn't put them all in here, um, including a man named Elishama, who was described as a scribe or secretary to the king. Well, the king not only didn't heed the words, but he took a knife and cut the scroll into pieces, piece by piece as they read it, and threw it in the fire. And um, God later removed the throne from him because of his actions. Okay, so three times the words Elishama, the secretary, are mentioned. Um, Once in verse 12, showing his presence during the reading of the scroll. And then in 20 and 21, it's only said um, where they talk about the scroll was put. They put it in Elishama's room. That's it. That's all the Bible says about Elishama because the main point of the story is um, Jeremiah's obedience and the king's disobedience. But that's the end of the story God wrote about Elishama as recorded in the Bible. However, here's the cool part. In 1975, an archaeological discovery about 44 miles southwest of Jerusalem unearthed these small lumps of clay that were impressed with a seal, which, as you know, in the ancient times, they stuck them on the official documents, and that was to make sure they, um, well, it identified who they were from, but it also made sure people hadn't opened them and altered them or whatever. So um, one of those seals belonged to Elishama, and it read, Elishama, servant of the king proving that he was indeed a scribe in the exact time frame, because they did all that study to see how old they were, and with the exact position that Scripture describes. From this obscure Bible character, who is just the tiniest blip on God's timeline, seemingly, from the three times he's mentioned in Scripture, years and years later, God used Elishama's story to once again prove the historical reliability of Scripture. Just more evidence to validate 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
So God used the tiniest detail of Elishama's role as scribe or secretary, an obscure person mentioned in the Bible only three times. He used that very minor detail to validate the words recorded in Scripture. Uh, He validated that to archaeologists hundreds and hundreds of years later. How would we like to have that for a legacy, you know? When we think the plot of our life is small or insignificant, I think it will benefit us to know that when God writes our story, no matter how small a role it seems like we play in God's kingdom, it's all part of his masterpiece, and every stitch is vitally important on God's timeline. That thought should be a reminder to us to consistently live out another of my favorite verses, Colossians 3.23. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men.